the idea for web app is that you know if you're working on a full stack web app and you're reviewing your coworkers change you can see the check marks in github but it's much easier just to you know make scripts that play around with the website on your behalf that's what we facilitate so if you make a change we'll spin up the environment with that change and let your coworkers look at it to tell you whether the change is good or not Hey, this is Brian, and you're listening to Jamstack Radio, a bi-weekly series where we discuss the Jamstack, a new way of building websites and apps that are fast, secure, and simple to work with. Jamstack Radio is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter at Jamstack Radio. Welcome to another installment of Jamstack Radio. On the line, we got Colin Chartier. Colin, how you doing? I'm well, Brian. Thanks for having me. Perfect, perfect. And uh, yeah, so you were um, you're here on the podcast. You're actually uh, you're introduced through a mutual connection, and uh, here to talk about web app IO. So before we jump into that, I actually wanted to find out who is who's Colin. Um, what are you doing, and how did you get here? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm currently in startup life. Of course, I've been an executive at various startups for the past five years. So that, as you might expect, takes up most of my time. Recreationally, I run sometimes. I've been uh, learning to cook, as most other people during the pandemic. Yep, yep. And uh, I'm a recovering tap dancer. Tap dancer? Okay. <laughs> you can't just drop that in the middle of the, the, the bio. Yeah. Did you do that in school or uh, like growing up? Yeah, I started when I was maybe eight, and then I kept going through university. Okay. That is that is quite the uh, quite the skill set, especially if you're uh, an executive at a startup. So, like, if you're doing your pitch deck, I imagine if you pull out the tap shoes, that is an automatic next round of funding right there. Oh, yeah, my my advice to everyone who asks how to raise just uh, channel your inner Fred Astaire. <laughs> uh, we don't have to talk about tap dancing. I actually, want to talk about your your history a little bit about your startups and being executive. So, like, were you at previous startups that maybe people have heard of? I mean, I guess potentially certain niches. I was CTO at a company called Parsehub. Okay. And they're probably a top five web scraping SaaS. If you've ever had to scrape lots of things from the internet, you might have heard of Parsehub. And I guess right after Parsehub, I am now working at WebAppIO, which you might not have heard yet, but you will in time. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to, to learning more about that. So let's just jump in and find out. I'll just ask the question what is WebAppIO? Yeah. So the idea for WebApp is that uh, CI. Is great and all, and uh, you know if you're working on a full stack web app and you're reviewing your coworkers' change, you can see the check marks in GitHub. But it's much easier just to play around with the website or you know make scripts that play around with the website on your behalf. You know that's what we facilitate. So if you make a change, we'll spin up the environment with that change and let your coworkers look at it to tell you whether the change is good or not. So are we talking sandbox environments? So folks can just go and see this web app live in sort of like some pseudo stage environment. Yeah, it's it's kind of halfway between Netlify and Circle CI, if that makes sense. Okay. So yeah, there's like a configuration file. Every time you push, it automatically gets created. You don't have to deal with the you know the cloud credentials or whatever. It's not a production environment. Like you probably wouldn't send customers there. And it kind of acts like Heroku dinos, where if you're not using them, they'll just sleep. Yeah. And then when you request them, you'll see a spinner, and then they'll wake up and you can play around with them. Okay, and that, that sounds like a really interesting use case too as well because like if I'm on an um, engineering team, an organization, like I want to have, like I like having the Netlify deploys to the site so that way I can go through and click through and like see if things are still up and running. Uh, but you, you mentioned something interesting where you say the halfway point between Circle CI 
in Netlify. So like what extras are you getting when reaching for a web app IO? Yeah. The big difference between us and something like Netlify is that uh, we don't do production hosting, so we can be, I guess, uh, sneakier with the build speeds. So in, in particular, we take memory snapshots of things as they build. So like maybe the prototypical example is you start Postgres, you start your backend, you start your frontend, and then you play around with the frontend, interacting with the backend, interacting with the database, and then you see if it works kind of as a whole package. And since we take memory snapshots, you don't have to do that whole process that you know takes 20 minutes every time. You just push, it loads a snapshot of the database and backend, copies in your new frontend changes, and then gives you a link. And you can immediately start you know, running with a new copy of the database and you know, with potentially the migrations or the backend branch you're working on or whatever. Okay, that's intriguing. So like setting up local environments with development databases is something that folks do and set up and sort of set it and forget it. But to recreate that in a I don't know if I'm using the right term for a sandbox environment, so web app IO. It sounds like y'all set that up with through some YAML up front. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess uh, I personally didn't like YAML when I was first picking out like the uh, the MVP. So uh, think less CircleCI.yaml, more a Docker file. So Got you it. just have the steps top down. It snapshots things automatically as it builds, and then it figures out what step it can skip to the next time you push. So you don't have to. You know, micromanage the cache keys or whatever you'd usually have to do. Yeah. Okay. Got it. That's what you were talking about the memory snapshot. So, is this across team? So, if I open up a PR and I've got it working and it's got the sort of all the staging data and everything like that, and people now can go test it, my teammate now has access to that same staging data if they were to go to click that link. Yeah. So, it's just, uh, again, pretty similar to Netlify. You have internet visible links. They're just embedded directly in the pull request. We actually embed a screenshot of the landing page for your specific change. Yeah. People click the screenshot and just sends them to you know, the internet visible per commit environment. I love and it. And then if you break it, you can just rebuild it. You know? yeah. There's no, uh, no customer screaming if you break the staging database or run a bad migration or something. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, so now my, my brains are sort of rolling through all these use cases of what I'd be doing this day to day. Like, I know whenever I go to squash a bug, like, I've got, there's like a very specific use case of how this sort of happened in production. And I need to reproduce that and then convince the rest of the team that I've solved the problem. So, are you saying that I, if I set up a snapshot leveraging like the data that's necessary that to showcase that I solved this problem? Are folks able to like go in there and sort of see how I basically? I'm thinking of like when you show houses, like you're staging up the house, uh, and people can walk through and see like, wow, I didn't know you could put a TV over the fireplace, which now everybody does. Like now you get to go and see, okay, TV over the fireplace. That was what was broken before. Let's just now hyper focus on clicking in, in the environment and make sure that works. Like I'm able to stage the setup in that way. Yeah, a super common thing that. Like we didn't even think of this when we were first making the technology, but I guess it kind of evolved alongside it. Is uh, you can take like a snapshot, like a database dump of a production database, yeah. and then you can anonymize it. So there's you know you just make like a, a script that goes through all the rows, swaps out the names with fake names, and, and then you get this thing that looks like production that's GDPR compliant, oh, and then you you just nice. throw that in a bucket. And then for your build script, you can say, start the database, download this dump, which might take five minutes, load this dump, which might take 10 minutes, and then take a memory snapshot of it. And then the next time you push, 
you get another copy of that seeded database. And you can even test things like, does the migration I just made actually work against production data, or does it violate some foreign keys or something? Because you know, you load the database snapshot, then you run the differential, yeah. you know, things for your specific change. Yeah, that extremely powerful. That just the one script of you saying that you could take a snapshot, replace the names to make a GDPR compliant, and then have that reusable for future and more instances of like being able to test data uh, is extremely powerful. Because like right now, I'm working on a problem uh, for my side project, which is open source, and I am seeding the data with actual real live data, which is GitHub data to GitHub repos. And I have definitely like wiped out the database multiple times while testing this. And it'd be so much easier if I could just like grab a bunch of random projects and then test to see if the interaction of my project works, something that's close to production. Yeah, you're basically solving a bunch of steps in my in my day-to-day workflow, which is pretty awesome. Uh, I wanted to actually touch on something that I saw on your website too as well, which kind of was it's a pretty bold thing to put on the website, which is review your code like Facebook does. Uh, can we get into the, like what that means and what, what's the history of that, that tagline? Sure. So I mean, I guess most developers probably know that you know the fangs, in particular Facebook and Google, have just like these huge teams of specifically developer engineers that all they do is make developer tooling for the rest of the developers. Because you know, like I think Google has a hundred thousand developers now, so. Like from Google's perspective, it makes sense to put a thousand developers working on developer tools, so that when you push and you open a pull request, you know if it's like one percent faster for a hundred thousand developers to merge their pull requests, then it's it's a big win for Google because it's the equivalent of hiring like hundreds of people. So the big fangs have figured out a lot of these things: the snapshotting, the you know, the loading database snapshots, making ephemeral environments, pull request automation in general. You know, really really good comprehensive tests that tell you exactly what line number you caused a bug on, things like that. But if you're working at basically any other company than a Fang, like you, you don't get all those things. You get some glimpse of it with, you know, like a GitHub Marketplace or with uh, like GitHub Actions or with, you know, like these configurable tools, but you still eventually need to hire someone to set up all of these pipelines. And you basically never get as good of an experience as you know like Facebook gives you. So we're we're hoping long term to let everyone have that experience of, you know, you push something, it's broken. Uh, your code reviewer can tell you exactly how it's broken on what lines, and you can get it, you know, shown to customers the same day you made the change, instead of, you know, a week and a half later, when you finally get the last reviewer to look at it. Yeah, yeah, and I, I've been at uh, so my day job being GitHub. I definitely seen the evolution of us get to a point where we have this sort of behemoth of a, a DevOps pipeline that gets get something out the door, just reviewed and tested, and uh, provision things, and uh, there's a whole team that does a bunch of stuff. I don't know what they're doing, uh, but they make it easier for me to get my one-off DevRel application up in production. And I definitely see a trend of like folks coming off of Fang companies and then recreating like startups or one-off tools or open-source projects to solve problems. So I'm curious, like you and your your co-founders, or y'all have that experience coming from Fang companies, or like where was I guess. My real question is like, where would this inspiration come from to solve this problem? Sure. So the specific problem of needing, you know, uh, snapshots of your database and wanting to make like snapshots of your environment to uh, run tests against, in particular, browser automation and have like uh, preview links, was from my experience at my last, you know, being CTO of a SaaS company. You have the same sorts of goals that Google does. Like, I've hired ten engineers. 
I want all of my engineers to be 10% faster so that I, you know, I don't have to hire more people to get more output. So I was solving a lot of these things kind of on the back end. And like I was looking at all the, the cutting edge, you know, like uh, the fangs all make papers to uh, exemplify how good it is to work there or whatever. Like you, you have the engineering blogs, you have the, <laughs> yes. you know, this is how we take memory snapshots of Kubernetes clusters. And uh, here's how we restore, like, uh, or here's how we forked Postgres to, you know. This is, this is the one reason why I went to OSCON and uh, all the O'Reilly conferences previously, which RIP, they don't exist anymore. But, uh, because you'd get all the Fang employees talk about how there are big hairy issues. Like, I guess one of the most popular ones is like the, which is not related to this, but the Chaos Monkey and Netflix. Yeah, the amount of people who tried to recreate that at their own companies after watching the one talk years ago, and now entire startups built on that same idea, absolutely amazing. So, it makes tons of sense. Yeah. So, I mean, I had that experience. My my co-founder like didn't work as a programmer, but she worked at various tech companies, and I guess she worked on the other side. Where you know she was asking people to get features made so that like you know uh, marketing could launch something, and the developers would take like three weeks to even get it like a, a fresh feature with no users uh, to the point that it could be shown to the users to like gather feedback it would take three weeks at like a fast moving tech company in quotes yeah so she she was really on board with the vision of build something, show it to users as quickly as possible because you know it's not broken and then iterate from there. Yeah, that's amazing because I just before this call, I was pairing with one of my coworkers on a problem where it, it basically, essentially, the age-old problem. It works on my machine literally, but I could not get it to work on their machine. And like we went through all the list of the things, trying to figure out what's happening, and kind of summarize it all to permissions inside the the repository we're trying to access data from. It's a, a GitHub problem we were working on, so we just use repos as as test databases and. Uh, we're now in our third week pairing on this thing because it's not like a high priority problem. It's just like a side project. And uh, it came to the third week. We finally figured out, oh, permissions. Like I have permissions you don't have. We should probably fix that. And uh, we, it, based on the error message and everything like that, we didn't quite understand what was happening up until very recently. But even having just environments with the same test users and to be able to have that consistent... For example, like in Google Chrome, because I did a lot of web app development, the drop down to create different profiles in Chrome so that way you can have different accounts for the same thing you're testing, that is annoying. <laughs> and I would definitely, which is not a service that you, you take care of. Uh, Google, I think, sort of takes care of that uh, natively, but in the browser. But just having extra user accounts to test is quite annoying to set up every time I want to test a feature. Uh, funny you should mention that, but. I'm sure most people at this point have heard of like browser stack or Percy or like Cypress. Yeah. There's a bunch of these like browser automation frameworks that have popped up since like I want to say 2015. Yeah. Where, you know, like uh, once you could do headless Chrome, everyone wanted to put Chrome in a Docker container and then like try to log in and make sure the login still worked. But I think it's really evolved into making sure that it also works on Linux, Firefox and uh, iOS Safari and Chrome on Windows. So these permutations of browsers, people want to try them on every pull request, and they can sort of do that for front end stuff with uh, you know like Netlify or Vercel or their own PR bot or whatever. But it's really difficult to spin up an environment for a pull request to the point that you can actually do browser automation. Like, does the drop down work on all ten combinations of browsers that we want to support? Um, so that's another thing our users have been using the environments for, because you know you make one. 
you know, you, you do the database, you start the back end, you start the front end, and then we have a split directive. So you can make 10 copies of it. And each of the 10 copies, you can test a different permutation of browser and operating system with browser stack or something like that. You know, you can use your existing tool, but you just magically get an environment to run it in. Yeah, yeah. And that's uh, <laughs> now I'm just thinking of another example that I did with uh, Playwright. So the headless Chrome browsers and being able to, uh, I guess Playwright's more than just Chrome. It also does Edge and, and Firefox as well. But testing to make sure stuff's rendering because, like, how many times I've I've definitely had a Safari bug or something even in Firefox, Fox or Brave, because uh, everybody's got their own flavor on top of Chromium. Well, Safari's not Chromium, but you know what I mean. Basically, everybody's got their own skin in how things work. That you just don't you don't know until you you open up something that's not Chrome and see, oh wow, we definitely did not make this feature correctly. Yeah, even us as a startup, you know, we we don't. Necessarily do as much browser testing as we should because you know you don't have the cycles to set up all of the different uh, harnesses, but we do have a test that just clicks every page. Like it basically like loads the landing page, finds all the links on the landing page, clicks them all, and then it just like makes a tree of all of the visitable links on the web page, like from the main landing page. So it clicks the dashboard, and from the dashboard it clicks all the tabs, and from all the tabs it clicks everything. Um, and it's basically like a fifty-line Cypress file. It's super super simple. But all it does is it makes sure there's no 404s on any of the pages, and there's no browser errors. And I think that's caught more bugs than almost any other test. Probably all the other tests combined, because yeah. most front-end bugs end up being like, oh, it, uh, you know, you broke the compilation on the account page, and now no one would have been able to log in. Yeah, and it's something that you kind of want to know when login's broken. Uh, you need to know that at the time of PR, uh, rather than when it goes up in production. So you mentioned Cypress too a couple times. I'm curious, how do you interact with web app? How do you get started? Like, what are the sort of steps? If I have a project, what am I looking for to uh, get started to work with it? Yeah, I mean, if you've ever set up CI on a project, it's very similar. If you think about setting up, you know, like a build process, you'd have your configuration to, you know, these are the steps I need to do to build. You'd have your like Docker file or whatever to specify how to build the image, and then when you push. You'd install it onto your GitHub repository, and then every time you push, it would run. Ours is only two steps, so it's even simpler than that method because we we combined the YAML with the Docker file. So all you need to do is uh, install us around the GitHub Marketplace. I think we're top ten CI plugins. I want to say. So you you install it on your GitHub repository. You create a file named Layer File that just contains the directives, and then we do all the memory snapshotting magically. Uh, one of the directives is expose website, so it's it's like a Docker file, but we've extended it to have extra things. So if you want just an ephemeral environment, you make a layer file that's like, you know, install Docker Compose, run Docker Compose up D, expose website localhost three thousand, and then that's it. Every time you push from then on, you get a link in your pull requests to view that environment. Excellent. Yeah. So um, I'm definitely going to be checking this out. Uh, you mentioned the marketplace. Uh, I've got that, definitely a project. So like we just found your your one simple example of finding broken links. I just had got accepted a PR on one of my projects, my doc site actually, because I had a couple broken links because we moved stuff around, and you know, you, you try to catch all that stuff when uh, you're reviewing PRs, but it always is going to be the case where there's something that this gets that slips through. So, yeah, Colin, I appreciate you coming and chatting about that. Anything else you want to cover about uh, Web App Bio that maybe we didn't we didn't get a chance to touch on? Um, I mean, the only I guess remaining thing is broadly what DevOps means for people building web apps in general. Because like I guess the question I get most often is, can I use this with GitHub Actions? Or, you know, 
am I going to have to migrate all of my GitHub Actions like build process over to this? And I, I think, in general, you should just choose tools that allow you to put your existing process in. If you had to switch all of your build process every time you changed cloud providers or changed like a CMs or changed from organization to individual repository, you just spend all of your time migrating things. So like the, the whole thesis of web app is that you can put it alongside your existing stuff. It shows up as an extra check below your GitHub Actions, below your Circle CI, below your browser stack, your Percy, your, you know. And then if you do want to migrate things into it, it's possible, but it's not, you know, required. Okay, it's nice to hear that that flexibility to as well. And for folks who are just want to tinker with stuff, because I know back, uh, you mentioned like four or five years ago, the it, it seemed like with all these cloud providers, it was you choose one and that's it. Yeah. And I, I know sitting at, at Netlify as an early employer, we figured out the multi-cloud environments pretty quickly uh, after you run through all the uh, sort of free credits. And um, I love the fact that like um, even with that, that you're able to pick and choose what you'd like to use as, as your provider, and like, despite vendor lock-in, like you did always workarounds. And um, uh, I prefer the workarounds or just folks providing opportunity to try different providers up front because it just seems kind of slimy getting stuck stuck in the one provider. Our our production is a big Kubernetes cluster. It's actually a bare metal Kubernetes cluster, which no one ever advises. Yeah, because the people advising you are the ones that want you to use their cloud, of course. But we had a we had a point. Our, like the main servers we use have, I think, eight hundred gigabytes of RAM, and they're like a thousand dollars a month ish, which is already a pretty good deal because like cloud providers would be three or four times that. We use we use like a European provider called OVH for the the main kind of like powerful servers to do the builds. But our provider ran out of servers in April, like because of the chip shortage in the supply chain. Uh, we, we were trying to get servers in April, and they said. Uh, you know, it was impossible for us to get more servers for the next sixty days or something. And we had customers that were onboarding, so we couldn't wait sixty days. So I, I added servers from another provider and just glued them into the existing Kubernetes cluster because I guess that's one of the big benefits of using Kubernetes is you can span it across multiple clouds. So I guess very similar to your experience at Edlify, where yeah. if you don't vendor lock yourself too hard, it's possible to circumvent unexpected issues with your cloud providers. Amazing. Yeah. So again, thanks for the conversation. I did want to transition us to the picks, folks. If you're listening and you, this all resonated with you, uh, it sounds like there's some easy intros for you to try Web App IO and some of your projects. Uh, so definitely check it out. In the show notes, we'll have a link to the website Web App IO, which is literally the website, but also Colin and his Twitter account as well to reach out, ask questions, and uh, yeah, report back. Tell us if you like it. Uh, but now, what I want to talk about is what I like, uh, which is picks. Uh, these are jam picks, things that we're jamming on. This could be movie, food, tech-related. There's, there's not really a limitation. We've got kind of really the extensive list of previous picks and some really profound ones in the past. But if you don't mind, I'll go first. And uh, the one pick that's kind of really taken up a lot of my time, for whatever reason, I've just got a lot of free time to watch YouTube, uh, is actually Tesla's. I don't own a Tesla today. But I've done like crazy amount of research on it. I think the sort of the buzz of what's happening at Tesla and these these cars in general uh, are just it continues to be up on the, to the right. I don't know. Do you drive a Tesla, Colin? Uh, I do not. You do not. Okay. Well, <laughs> you're gonna get on the bandwagon soon. So what I did is I actually did a test drive in Tesla. This is my pick: is test driving Teslas in San Francisco, which I would pay for this this experience. Because uh, if you know San Francisco, there's tons of hills everywhere. Doesn't matter if you're downtown, 
you're a minute away from a hill. So I signed up to, I had like a ha- an afternoon with no meetings and I'm like, I'm going to sign up to test drive a Tesla. Went into San Francisco, got into a Tesla, a Model Y, uh, which absolutely a, a gorgeous, amazing car. Uh, it's not quite the X, but it's still a very nice, very nice uh, crossover. And they give you 45 minutes with you and the Tesla to be able to test drive all over San Francisco. And San Francisco, most people might not know this, is seven square miles. So you can go all around San Francisco twice in 45 minutes. And uh, that's what I did. <laughs> I went up the hills. I, I, I almost went down Lombard Street, which was like the, uh, the curvy street or what. The, it's the, the famous street. But that's even during the pandemic, that's known to be backed up with the tourists who just want to drive down there. So I was like, that would be my whole time just waiting to go down the street. It'd be an amazing experience in a Tesla, to be quite honest. But I'll probably do it again. I'll probably go down. That'll be my goal to go down that street. But yeah, I was actually really impressed. If you, if anybody's never looked into Tesla, I, I don't own stock in Tesla or anything like that. I just one day was like, hey, I should look into this because everybody raves about Teslas. And now I'll be buying a Tesla. Uh, it's on. It's it's on uh, pre-order for six months because chip shortages and all that other stuff. So. <laughs> Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Here in Canada, you've uh, you've started seeing Teslas. It's certainly less prevalent than the Bay, but I think like in the past, I want to say two years, you've started seeing more and more to the point that like maybe once a day I'll see a Tesla. But yeah, they're everywhere. I, I think as the number goes up, hopefully there'll be more chargers. That's the big uh, yeah the big problem here is that like you know most garages don't have chargers and it's it's already hard to get parking in downtown Toronto. So. Yeah, that, that is a challenge. I do benefit being in the Bay Area. There's chargers, quite a few chargers in the area. Um, and then Tesla's trying to do this whole thing with the solar panels on the roof and then the superchargers at the home. So yeah, there's a lot of benefit. But I think Tesla just recently moved to, or they're moving headquarters to Texas now. Um, they're still going to be in the Bay Area, but I think they're gonna, it's going to see the expanse across the U.S. at least. I can't speak for Canada, uh, but we'll see. Have you, uh, have you tried driving in the Waymo in Austin yet? Uh, I haven't. That's a thing. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, like I guess Waymo has been doing driverless car tests. Yeah, like, there's like the driverless taxi that you can drive around with. So I think the oh, uh, okay, got the it. Test, test drive a Tesla, drive a Waymo are the two car experiences. <laughs> Excellent. You know, I vaguely remember this actually being a thing, but yeah, no, I've, I've not tried that out. But I'm going to put it on my list because I've I checked off the box for the Tesla. Now I got to go to Waymo. Yeah, well, I guess once you get your Tesla, you have to you have to practice, and you know. You can go to Las Vegas, go a little further. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Do you have any picks to share with the uh, the audience? I recently got an espresso maker. It's called a Breville Bambino. It's like a it's like a single shot espresso maker, and it has this little steam nozzle that you can use to foam milk. But uh, I bought it just because I like espresso, and I guess I was kind of tired of drip coffee, and I wanted some slightly more interesting coffee in the mornings. But I realized that because it has this nozzle that comes off of the right side and it, it has a uh, hot water for Americanos and it has steam for like steaming milk. You can actually make all sorts of things. Like you can make bowl noodles, you can make tea, you can make, uh, you know, like I, I have a, a teapot and you just put like loose leaf tea in the teapots, like a basket, and then you aim the hot water jet at it and you just turn the hot water on and it automatically turns off after like a cup or two. So you can just uh, press the hot water button and leave and you come back with a cup of tea versus, you know, having to boil the water or microwaving the cup or, you know, yeah, it's a it's a whole thing, and it's always exactly ninety degrees, so it's it's perfect for uh, most tea. That is amazing, and uh, I've definitely seen quite a few people pick up uh, fancier coffee coffee setups, uh, especially being home. 
I looked out there in the entire pandemic. I lived across the street from a coffee shop. So I would just peek out the window and see if there was a line out the door. And uh, if there wasn't, that's that was my my life hack for coffee. Well, I appreciate you chatting with us. Uh, I am actually going to look up this Bambino coffee machine, uh, espresso machine rather. And um, I'm also going to check out web app because I think I've got a use case for this as well uh, at work. So uh, with that being said, Colin, thanks so much for the conversation. Listeners, uh, check out everything we talked about and keep spreading the jam. That's all the time we have for today. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or if you'd like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter at Jamstack Radio. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. 